we just deliver this service into your hands. We believe that you can saturate the atmosphere with your creative presence and influence and inspiration. Breathe into our hearts the word of the Lord. As I preach what you put on my heart to preach, I pray you will intercept those words, saturate them with an individualized message, and let everyone in this place hear an individualized, personalized revelation from God that will bring miraculous transformation in their lives. We release our faith and believe that even while the preaching is going on, you will be sending forth your power to miraculously heal us, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And if you believe that, would you give him a praise and expectation? Come on, praise him. That the Holy Spirit's going to be very involved in this. Now, the subject I'm going to focus on today is so profound, so powerful, so prophetic, there's no way I can cover it just this morning. So this is part one. Tomorrow night is part two. So make up your mind now not to miss tomorrow night. I'm going to start with Acts chapter 3, verse 25. This is part of Peter's sermon, his second sermon that's recorded in the Word of God. The crippled man at the gate, beautiful, was leaping and jumping and dancing and praising God. The crowd was in awe. Back in the beginning of the church, the focal point was not a sermon. Usually, the focal point was a miracle, and the sermon came to explain what God just did. And God healed that man, and Peter had to explain what had purchased that miraculous power. So he went into an exposition of the crucifixion and the resurrection and what it accomplished. And then he addressed a predominantly Jewish crowd of people who were gathered there for the feast of Pentecost, Shavuot. And he said, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. I want you to repeat that after me. Everybody say, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Whatever you are a child of, you owe your existence to. I am a child, physically speaking, of Andrew and Winnie Shreve. It took two, not one. And it took male and female, contrary to popular culture. And when those two came together in a covenantal matrimonial commitment and the marriage was consummated, I was one of the results. And there were two primary influences in the Old Testament that brought heaven down to earth and brought God down to people who were estranged from the things of God. And those two influences were the covenants that God has established and the prophetic word of prophets from Adam onward. Adam was the first to make a prophetic declaration in Scripture. 
and then on into the history of God's revelation, you have men like Enoch and Abraham and later on Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the rest of the prophets. And through the covenants God introduced and through the ministry of prophetic voices, something called Israel was created, a nation that was in covenant with God. I don't agree with everything that Israel does, but I agree with God's assessment of who Israel is. God doesn't agree with everything that's been done in Israel from the foundation, but God does stick by his covenant commitment to that nation, and that's going to be proven in our day more than it ever has. Go ahead and give God thanks for that in advance. We're living in the day where we may see it with our own eyes. Now, I have been grafted into Israel through the born-again experience. I'm not Jewish in a physical sense. I didn't come from that genetic line. I traced it back as far as I could and found out my great-great-great-great-grandfather was an English sheriff. That's where my name Shreve comes from. It means the sheriff of an English shire, a law enforcer. I thought that's pretty that's uh, very, not just pretty, but that's very relevant to what I do now. I enforce God's laws, the laws of the kingdom. But in this book we found in the Library of Congress, it stated that grand, grand, uh, great, 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 great grandma, I forget how far back she is, was a Turkish belly dancer. So, I mean, how do you fit that in? <laughs> uh, but then they had a descendant that, was uh, very involved in the creation of the double-wheel paddle boat, and he was so influential in that day that they named Shreveport, Louisiana after him. I started feeling better after that revelation about Grandma. And then I read further in the book and found out Captain Shreve's offspring were not quite as noble as he was, nor intelligent as he was, and they used their father's invention to run rum up and down the Mississippi River. So I found out I can't trust very much in my natural heritage, but I can trust a lot in my spiritual heritage. And if I identify with Israel, I identify with the God of Israel and with the promises that were made to Israel. And if Peter could state this to a predominantly Israelite crowd, he could say it to us as well because most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles who have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel. But I can truly say I too am a child of the prophets and I too am a child of the covenants that God has made in this world. This is why I exist. I would not exist as a proclaimer of the word of God, as a saved, blood-washed, born-again child of God, were it not for the covenants God has introduced into this world and the prophetic voices that have led up to this day. So right now, on the basis of that truth, would you lift one hand toward heaven and say, I declare I am a child of the prophets and I am a child of the covenants that God has made in this world, in Jesus' name. And you ought to go ahead and give him a shout of praise for that.
that's the basis of everything I have to say. Because I'm not just trying to be involved in something I conceive to be a covenant with God. It's part of who I am. It's my spiritual DNA. It's your spiritual DNA. It's part of the reason you can face things in life that would completely devastate someone else and you come out smelling like the proverbial rose. Because you've got a covenant-keeping God that is involved in the details. There's an old saying that the devil's in the details, not for us. Not for us. If you're a covenant son or a covenant daughter of God, God's in the details of your life. And he's weaving the miraculous into impossible situations. Now, let me define what a covenant is. And let this sink in deep. A covenant is a binding agreement. Please, everyone say a binding agreement. And remember the word binding. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties, each binding himself to fulfill certain obligations. It involves promises, and it also involves consequences if the covenant is broken. God does not think very highly of what he calls in the Bible covenant breakers. He labels them among some of the most wicked traits a person can have in his or her life. Covenant breaking is a very serious thing. And I believe when you start understanding the power of a covenant and the nature of a covenant, it will stabilize your home. It will stabilize your marriage. It will stabilize your church. It will stabilize your work relationships because you'll find out relationships, both vertical and horizontal, are covenantal. It's a binding agreement. When you come to a church and start participating in a church, that is a covenantal relationship, not to be taken lightly, to be considered a sacred right to be watched over. A binding agreement between two or more parties, each binding himself. Well, I can see that in human covenantal relationships, but what about my relationship with God? The amazing thing about it, when God entered into a covenant with you, he knew he'd come out on the raw side of the deal because he knew you would mess up and blow it and make stupid choices and and yet he still bound himself to you. He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And lo, I am with you always. Somebody shout, always, even to the end of the world. I won't ask how many of you have dragged him through a mud puddle since that time. All I want to know from you is whether or not God has been faithful to you. Has he been faithful to his covenant? Deuteronomy 7, 9 says he is the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him to a thousand generations. Covenant is so strong as part of the legacy you leave behind. 
Even when you leave this world, there's a covenantal grace that will pass down to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren down to a thousand generations. And there's controversy over how long a generation is. There's biblical proof that it's 40 years. There's biblical proof that it's 100 years. Let's take the lower number. A thousand generations is 40,000 years. The God who made a covenant with you intends to keep a covenant with you to such degree and on such a level that 40,000 years from now, there would still be a covenantal grace hovering over your offspring when they had long ago forgotten you ever even existed. You ought to thank God for the power of a covenant. He is a covenant Creating God, he's a covenant remembering God. He's a covenant establishing God. He's a covenant keeping God. He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him. Why are those two linked together? Because in order for him to keep covenant with you, he had to be merciful. But he keeps covenant and mercy with those who, what? Love him. That's not a heavy, heavy requirement. All he asks is for an authentic devotion on your part, a sincere love in you toward him. And through all the ups and downs of life, he says, I'll be there. I'll fight your battles for you. I'll oppose your enemy. I'll pick you up when you crumble into a thousand pieces. You're not alone in this. I'm going to be there invisibly behind you and beside you. He said, I'll be at your right hand that you should not be moved. You ought to thank God every day of your life that a covenant-keeping God is watching over you constantly. There are five elements to a covenant, and this is foundational. Please remember it. Don't forget it. Number one, the words of the covenant. Number two, the sacrifice of the covenant. Number three, the token of the covenant. Number four, the place of the covenant. Number five, the mediator of the covenant. Every covenant that God has ever established in this world has those five elements. Let me go through them, them again. The words of the covenant, the sacrifice of the covenant, the token or the sign of the covenant, the, mediator, the place of the covenant, and the mediator of the covenant. And you'll see as I give you an overview of how many major covenants God has established in this world, how all those five principles are present. How many covenants has God established? Well, there's minor covenants and major covenants. And of the major covenants, there have been nine major covenants established in this world. The first two were with Adam and Eve, with Adam primarily. And they are the covenant of creation and the covenant of redemption. And if I had time, I would go into the five elements in each one of those. The words of the covenant, the sacrifice of the covenant, the token of the covenant. See, every covenant has a token. It has a visible reminder of an invisible reality. 
What was the visible reminder in the Garden of Eden, which was the place of the covenant, that reminded Adam, who was the mediator of the covenant, the words of the covenant that God had spoken to him? It was the tree of life in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. I love this church. You've got nine trees of life all around here. I told somebody this morning you'd give a legalistic Christian a heart attack, that you don't just have one Christmas tree stuck over in a corner. Everywhere you look, they're right in your face. Praise God. (laughs) It's a celebration to me. I love it. I love it. It's celebratory. But anyway, you've got the covenant of creation and the covenant of redemption. And those were comprised of the words God spoke to Adam before the fall, and the words God spoke to Adam after the fall. And those words included responsibilities that were handed to Adam, laws he had to abide by, promises God intended to keep, and so forth. The words of the covenant, the sacrifice of the covenant. Well, where does the sacrifice come in in the Garden of Eden? If God made a covenant with him and spoke words like, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion and all the instructions he gave Adam, well, where does the sacrifice of the covenant come in? In that particular circumstance, Adam was the sacrifice because God put him to sleep and reached into his side The first bloodshed in a perfect paradise called Eden happened when that rib was pulled out and God made a woman out of something really stable and strong. There's a big difference between a handful of dust and a bone. No wonder women have such strength to survive no matter what comes their way. Amen? That was supposed to get a really loud shout from you ladies. But then the covenant of redemption. And again, I'm just, uh, I'm not covering these things thoroughly, but I want you to get a little taste of how God does things. What did the covenant of redemption involve? And again, it was made with the mediator, Adam, and the place was now the east of Eden. And the sacrifice were the lambs, I believe they were lambs, that were slain in order to provide coats of skins for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. Somebody had to learn a proper sacrificial approach to God in order to teach Abel how to do it later on, right? It must have been Adam. And God gave words of the covenant. And and this is what really amazes me, is that in the words he pronounced to Adam and Eve after the fall, There was only one major promise. The rest was uh, primarily a curse, a curse on Eve, a curse on Adam, a curse on the serpent. But there was one covenantal promise that was buried in all of that negative speech that formed the covenant of redemption. And that was the declaration God made not to Adam, not to Eve, but to the serpent. He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and your seed and the woman and her seed, and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. Praise God, praise God, praise God. That was the only powerful prophetic word that Adam and Eve had to hang on to. Think of that. 
You've got the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. They didn't have a Bible. They had one word from God. They plunged into darkness. They plunged into separation from God. But they knew they were still in covenant because God gave them a token of the covenant. And that token was a burning sword that turned north, south, east, and west. A flaming sword and cherubim on either side. And that was God's way of saying there's a way back to Eden paradise if you'll follow the flaming sword. Well, what is the flaming sword? God speaks symbolically. God has a poetical, symbolical mind. He could have just said it plainly, but instead he said it in an analogous way. He had this beautiful symbol of a sword that later on would actually exist physically. At the time, there was no such thing as a physical sword. Have you ever wondered about that? No one had ever forged a sword. But in advance, God revealed his word as a sword because he knew thousands of years later, a writer named Paul would say the word of the Lord is sharp and powerful like a two-edged sword. Hallelujah. And I believe the fire enveloping the sword was representative of the spirit. So God was saying, if you'll follow the word and if you'll follow the spirit and pass on what you know to future generations, I'm going to get you back to paradise. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad we're headed that direction? Mm. Those are just the first two covenants. The third covenant is the covenant God made with Noah. The fourth covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. The fifth covenant is the Mosaic covenant. And each one of these had a specific place where the covenant was mentioned. Like, for instance, Noah's covenant, that was declared on Mount Ararat. In fact, that's the first time in the Bible where you hear the word covenant mentioned. Where God said, I will make a covenant with you and with your offspring and with all the animals that are in the ark with you. So all the animals were in a covenant relationship with God. Think of that. Your dogs and cats have inherited covenantal relationship with the Creator. It came down through that animal species line. That's pretty amazing. But uh, then you have the Mosaic Covenant. That took place at Mount Sinai. Then you have the Promised Land Covenant. That was a special covenant God made with Joshua and the children of Israel at Mount Gerizim. That was the place of the covenant where they wrote the words of the law on plastered stones and God spoke through the Levitical tribe this time where they rehearsed all the curses and the blessings of the law and the people shouted amen to it. See, they knew that the word amen is covenantally binding. They knew when they shouted amen to the curses and amen to the blessings, they were binding themselves to the blessings and curses and binding themselves to the God who gave those blessings and curses. And at that proclamation, God was binding himself to fulfill those blessings in the lives of the obedient and the curses in the lives of the disobedient. So there was a fusing. Everybody say a fusing or a reestablishing of this covenantal relationship with Israel that started when they came out of Egypt. And I'm going to bring you back to that in just a moment. Then the seventh covenant 
is the covenant God made with David. And we're going to find out something really amazing about that in just a moment. It was a special covenant, a Davidic covenant. And then the eighth covenant is the covenant you are participating in, Sean. It is the covenant every one of you are enjoying right now. And it's called the new covenant. I wondered when I was studying this out years ago why God waited until the eighth covenant to call it a new covenant. Because when he made a covenant with Noah, it was a new covenant, different than what he'd made with Adam and Eve. When he made a covenant with Abraham, it was a new covenant, different than what he had made with Noah. So why wait till the eighth covenant to call it a new covenant? Because in this covenant... The beginning and the end of the covenant is for God to make everything new. Anyone who enters into the new covenant becomes a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the ultimate outcome of it all is going to be the heavens passing away with the great noise, the earth melting with fervent heat, a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation universally. What is starting in you is going to explode exponentially into the entire cosmos and change everything. Oh, you're part of a power. Powerful, powerful agreement between eternity and time, between heaven and earth, and you ought to thank God for it every day of your life. I wish I had time to really go into it deeply. I would urge you to go read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 yourself. And that's one of the main areas in the Old Testament where God foretold the coming of the new covenant. And he said, this is the covenant that I will make with my people, not according to the covenant I made at Sinai. God said, this is the covenant that I will make, a new covenant. He said, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Did you know the new covenant was originally made with Israel? And you Gentiles got in by default. You happened to discover the covenant and said, I want to be part of that. But it was made with Israel and Judah first. And God said, this is the covenant that I will make, the new covenant that I will make. And incidentally, it's the eighth covenant. And did you know, symbolically, in biblical numerology, the number eight represents new beginnings? Because the eighth note in a scale is the beginning of a new scale, right? The eighth day is the beginning of a new week. And the eighth covenant is the beginning of a new life. And we heard about what God can do when he gives someone a new life this morning. Praise God. So awesome. And he said, this is the covenant, the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He said, I will write my law in their heart. Everybody say, in my heart. So this covenant is moving from an external demand to an internal transformation. Wow, what a shift. What a shift. The Mosaic covenant was an external demand. They heard the audible voice of God on Mount Sinai demanding You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. And on down through the Ten Commandments. But there was no transformation supernaturally of the internal part of the people who heard that covenant. So they had to try to live up to the covenant within the power of human will. But now in the new covenant, God says it didn't work very well that way. So now I'm going to get inside of you. And instead of the law being outside of you, the law is going to be inside of you. And you're going to have a heart to do what God wants you to do, to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. I'm going to give you a new nature. Come on. That's why the Bible said, put off the old man, which is corrupt. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. Come on, let's put on the new man today. That's who I am. I'm a child of the covenant. I'm a child of the prophets. That's just one of three main things he spoke in Jeremiah 31. He also said, they shall no more say to their brother, or their neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. They shall all know me. In the other covenants, the people of God had to depend on an individual that had an intimate relationship with God, and they trusted what Jeremiah said. They trusted what Ezekiel said. Going further back, they trusted what Moses said. They trusted what Joshua said because they walked with God, heard God, had an experience and an encounter with God. But the normal Israelite didn't in the same measure, in the same way. But God said, in this coming covenant, I'm going to know every single person in covenant with me. And every single person in covenant with me is going to know me personally. Aren't you glad you have a personal relationship with God? You can go to God directly and he will welcome you in the holy of holies. What advantages you have as children of the covenant hallelujah and then the third sign of the new covenant is probably the most mind-boggling he said their sins and their iniquities will i remember no more how come i remember them all the time if god's forgotten them why don't you quit rehearsing them in your mind? I was sitting years ago with a friend of mine who was involved in a certain war that I believe was a political war, really didn't defend our freedom that much. And he stepped on a landmine and it blew both his legs off. And I went to try and console him, but what do you say, right? Words seem hollow and cheap in a way. So I just sat there for a long time just feeling his pain and just being there for him and not saying a whole lot. And then I broke the silence and I said, what's the hardest thing about what you're facing now? He said, phantom pain. I said, I have no idea what that is. I said, what is phantom pain? He said, it's a trick of the nervous system. He said, I feel excruciating pain in the legs that are no longer there. 
I can't do anything about it. I can't massage my knee. I can't rub my ankle because they don't exist anymore. I just have to wait for it to subside. Sometimes it will last 15 minutes. Sometimes it will last 30 seconds. I just wait for it to subside, and then I can go on. But while I'm going through it, it's extremely painful. And while he was talking, God was talking to me. And my eyes lit up, and he said, uh, Uh, What's going on? I said, God just spoke to me while you were sharing that. I said, that's what guilt is in the life of a believer who's been truly forgiven of their sins. And that believer is in a covenant relationship with God. Because God said their sin and their iniquity will I remember no more. That's God's way of saying it's been blotted out. It doesn't even exist anymore as far as God's concerned. And I said, if you're going through this recurring guilt and miserable depression, you're experiencing a kind of spiritual phantom pain. It's not a trick of the nervous system. It's a trick of the devil to make you feel grief and sorrow and pain over stuff that happened 15 years ago. Come on. Why don't you start thanking God? Why don't you start praising God that if he's forgotten it, you can forget it? And he said their sins and iniquities will be remembered no more. Come on, I'm in covenant with God. That means my back story doesn't have authority over me. And it doesn't have authority over you. Are you getting a lot out of this? And then the ninth covenant is something I call the everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that draws from the first eight covenants and there's everlasting elements in all of them. Some of the eight covenants just dealt with man's journey through this world and it kind of falls off at the culmination of everything. At the resurrection of the dead, certain elements of those covenants won't be necessary or needful anymore. But there are everlasting aspects to it. And so that comprises the final ninth covenant. Hallelujah. This is so rich. Let me go into the original language. The Hebrew word that is translated covenant is berit. B-E-R-I-Y-T-H. Everybody say berit. And berit has a very unique flavor of meaning. It means a pact made by passing through pieces of flesh. A pact made by passing through pieces of flesh. It was a cultural thing back then that was well understood and recognized by people that were not Israelites, that were not Jews, that when tribal leaders came together and committed themselves to each other, to fight each other's battles, to be there for each other in times of famine or in times of warfare. They would make a covenant, and that covenant involved splitting an animal sacrifice in two, and the covenanting parties would walk through this ox or some other animal that had been sacrificed, and as they walked through, they were making a symbolic statement And God speaks in symbolic ways. They were saying publicly, they were revealing publicly that they were committing themselves to each other unto death. It was their way of saying, let death come upon me just like this sacrificial animal if I fail to keep 
my covenant commitment. See, they understood the sacredness of covenant. They understood the power of covenant. And that was a symbolic way of representing that I call death on myself if I fail to keep this covenant commitment. Well, you would, you would do everything within your power to keep that commitment or you will come under the load of a self-curse. Let me show you the pronounced statement God made in that area. Do you remember Genesis chapter 15, I believe it is, where God spoke to Abraham and told him, your seed are going to be like the stars in the heaven. They're going to be like the sand by the seashore, like the dust of the earth, innumerable. And then Abram fell asleep. And when he woke up, he saw what appeared to be like a burning torch or a burning oven passing through pieces of flesh. God had told him to sacrifice five animal sacrifices. And three of them he had divided in half. Two of them were smaller animals and so he had not divided them. But when he woke up, this, what you would call epiphany or maybe a, an appearance of Christ in a different kind of form, it was like a burning torch. Can you imagine being asleep and waking up and seeing this supernatural torch that was burning and churning like an oven with firewood in it? Can you imagine the intensity of that flame as it passes through those pieces of flesh? And that was God's way of saying, I call death on myself if I fail to keep this covenant with Abraham. No wonder Israel has conquered every attack since 1948 against insurmountable odds. When they hoisted the Star of David flag on May 14th of that year, they were immediately attacked by five Arab nations, the sum total of the populations, about 100 million people against 800,000 Jews, and the enemy had all the armaments. They had the tanks, they had the guns, they had the bombs, they had the planes, they had the ships, and these newly arrived uh, exiles from all over Europe that had come were not allowed to bring weapons with them. Weapons were contraband. And somehow 800,000 Jews conquered five armies coming against them. Why? Because they were in covenant with a God that still honors what he said to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would fight against those who fight against him. Come on, that's my God. Somebody will lift your hand and say, that's my God. I serve him also. He fights my battles for me. It's amazing. And like I said, we're going to see that intensify as the days and as the decade unfolds before us. Mm. God cannot die. And, and yet the God who cannot die symbolically called death upon himself with Abraham if he failed to keep that covenant. And the Jews, for the most part, who benefit from that covenant do not acknowledge what God is presently doing covenantally in the world. Of course, there's many Messianic Jews, but there's many who are not. And yet there's still such an overflow of that covenant from the past 
that God is defending them supernaturally, though they do not acknowledge everything he's done in the earth. If they could benefit to that degree from covenants they don't fully comprehend, how much more will you benefit from the covenants you do comprehend? Can I, can I get a praise going up to heaven in the house? Because I'm not trusting in a divided cow or ox as the sign, sacrificial sign of my covenant with God. I'm dependent on a different kind of sacrifice altogether. It's the sacrificial offering of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary, Golgotha. And I look to that sacrifice and I realize God is saying, I call death upon myself. In an eternal sense, if I fail to keep my covenant with anyone who meets with me at that sacrificial offering of the cross, you're far more stable than you think you are. Let me show you something. This is powerful. Do you remember when the children of Israel were in Egypt? And... The Bible says, and I love this, in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it came to pass, and I'm reading, in process of time, that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage, and God heard their groaning, and God, I'm going to stop right there. How many know he brought them out of Egypt? How many know he brought them out with signs and wonders? How many know he crushed the Egyptian nation with ten plagues? But why did he do it? Did he do it because Israel was sighing and crying and groaning? There were people all through the world that had been enslaved by some other nation that were sighing and crying and groaning. So that's not why God delivered the children of Israel. Their deep sorrow was not what fully motivated him to do what he did and the supernatural way he brought them out. Let me read the rest of the passage. It said, God heard their groaning and God remembered his, God, God what? God remembered his covenant. He did what? God remembered his covenant. What did he do? God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, that was four centuries old. And yet God remembered what he had spoken to the children of Israel prior to their existence, prior to them coming in the world, prior to their bondage, prior to their slavery. God had established an invisible thing called a covenant that hovered over them all the years of their misery and at an appointed time miraculously brought them out. I challenge you once again to shout out, that's my God too, hallelujah. That's my God too, he's gonna remember the covenant he has with me. And because of that, he'll help me in situations where there's no answer. See, God told Noah on Mount Ararat, he said, as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And that involved abundant provision, abundant protection, abundant purpose. And I believe if you're really in covenant with God, there's abundant provision waiting in the wings for you. 
there's abundant protection waiting in the wings for you because a flood was coming that was going to kill everyone in the world. But one man and the rest of his family was in covenant with God. All he had to do was obey God's directives, and God said, I'm going to put you in a safe place. I'm going to provide for you in a time when there would be no provision any other way. I don't know about you, but I'm not trusting in just prepping and doing this and doing that to prepare for some horrible time coming on the earth. I believe there's a supernatural God that's going to provide for his people in supernatural ways, and you're going to be in awe over what God does for his people in these latter days. I refuse fear. I command fear to leave the room and leave my life and leave my heart and leave your minds, amen? There's no fear. God is our refuge and strength, the present help in time of trouble. But listen to this. I've seen God's abundant provision, and I'll, I'll end in just a moment, in, in ways that were impossible. Back in the beginning of my ministry, I used to carry a tent around in an old dilapidated bus. You never experienced the joy of that, did you, David? I... <laughs> I mean, it was a dilapidated bus. It was the bus the school wouldn't use anymore, and we could buy cheap. And on our way to Tampa, Florida, we hit a pothole in the road. Do you guys have potholes in Kentucky? Uh, We hit a pothole in the road, and it damaged the rim. And from that point forward, I couldn't keep air in the tire over about 30 miles. So we had to stop every 30 miles and air the tire up again. Both the rear tires on the bus were bald. And I I had hundreds, thousands of pounds of equipment in the bus, chairs and stakes and poles and tent pieces. and, And it was kind of a dangerous situation. And when I got to Tampa, I thought, I've got to, I've got to fix my bus somehow. And so I went around to all the local junkyards, and uh, I told them what was wrong, and they said, you know how those junkyard cronies are, with a piece of straw stuck out of their mouth and sounded like an authority on everything. They said, fella, you won't find one of those rims anywhere. Those old split rims were outlawed years ago because when you try and change a tire, it whips out. It's, it's called a split rim because it splits open and it's damaged people, it's injured people, it's even cut their hands off. So we had to melt all those split rims down. You won't find one anywhere. And they didn't know it, but they were prophesying. I went to every junkyard in town and couldn't find a split rim anywhere. So I, I had my next meeting already scheduled up near Gastonia, North Carolina, And I was praying the whole way. God put angels under those tires. We pray ridiculous prayers sometimes, don't we? One day I'll get to heaven and meet some angels with tread marks all over them, I'm sure. But anyway, I was praying, oh, God, help us survive. Every 30 miles, we'd have to stop and air up the tire because it wouldn't hold air. When I pulled on the lot in Gastonia, God is my witness There were two brand new truck tires, exactly the size that fitted my bus, on split rims, exactly like the ones that were on my bus. So I just wanted to fix the rim. God wanted to give me two tires and two brand new split rims. Praise God. I'm in covenant with the Creator. He does things like that. And that's not all. 
when we were putting up the tent, a white dove walked out of the woods and allowed itself to be caught. I mean, we stretched out our hand. It walked right up in our hand. Then we went in the tent after we erected the tent and let it fly in circles around the tent, and it would come right back to us. It was quite amazing, and we took that as a sign that we were going to have revival. That tent was packed out with over 300 people from the very beginning, drug addicts getting saved, alcoholics getting saved, all kinds of miracles happening because a a covenant-keeping God said, I can take care of you in the natural, and I can take care of you in the supernatural. Come on, somebody release your faith right now and praise God for healing your body. Praise God for delivering you from poverty. Praise God for delivering you from satanic attack. Praise God for delivering your family from all the stress and strife going on. Come on, somebody lift your voice right now and thank the covenant-keeping God that he's going to move in your life supernaturally because he said so. Abundant protection is mine too. Not only abundant provision, abundant protection. Shortly after I got saved, I was raised Catholic, so I thought the best way to get close to God was to become a monk and live in a monastery behind walls the rest of my life, spending the rest of my existence praying and seeking God. See, I I had that mindset because I was grown up in that faith. My kids are very glad I did not make that decision. They've told me numerous times, oh, I'm so glad, Dad, you didn't become a monk. But I, I was hitchhiking. I'd been saved about, a, about two months, maybe three. And I'd given away everything I owned because I wouldn't need it as a monk. And I was hitchhiking to go to the monastery outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And this guy picked me up hitchhiking. And it was all a ruse. He told me he had to pick up his check first at this construction site. And he pulled in the construction site, walked in the trailer, said, my check will be ready in about 20 minutes. Let me show you around. And before I knew what was happening, he'd pulled off in a field, and he was going at a high rate of speed across that field. And it was full of furrows where there'd been corn or something planted. And so the rear end of the car was just bouncing. And I'm getting real suspicious because this doesn't look like the interstate to Atlanta, right? And he gets over in the middle of the field where there's a big grove of trees, slams on the brake, pulls out a knife about that long and held it to my neck and told me he was going to rape me, rob me, and kill me. The first thing that went through my mind was run, but I knew that was a stupid choice because he could run me down with his vehicle. The second word that went through my mind was preach. So I unloaded on the guy. I said, buddy, you're going to face God on the day of judgment and give an account for every deed you have ever done in your life. And I said, apparently you're going to split hell wide open because you've lived a wicked and rebellious life. And God's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I know you not. And I just kept blasting him with as fierce and fearful a message as I could give him. All of a sudden, much to my surprise, after what felt like an eternity, but it was probably five or ten minutes, he broke down weeping and sobbing and said, you sound just like my mama, and handed me the knife. I thought, what do I do with this? I rolled the window down and threw it as far as I could, and then the horrifying thought hit my mind, oh God, my fingerprints are on that knife now. This may incriminate me. But anyway, he turned around and knelt down on the floorboard. I'm only about three months old in the Lord. I don't know how to cast out devils, but I supernaturally learned that lesson real quick. 
He knelt down and said, cast these demons out of me. They're driving me to do evil things. I laid my hands on him, claimed the blood of Jesus, demanded demons come out of him, demanded that he be delivered. Hallelujah. The power of God swept in that car. He was saved. He was born again. He dropped me off on the road. He said, I'm never going to live that kind of life again and took off. I've never seen him since, but I found out there's a covenant-keeping God that washed over me. The enemy, the enemy, the enemy wanted to cut my life off before I even got it started in ministry. But God smiled and said, I'm going to use what the enemy did against him and I'm going to turn it around and make what was intended for evil to work for good and I'm going to bring that person into the kingdom of God. Come on, if you're a covenant son, if you're a covenant daughter, bad things become good things. Negative things become positive things. Because you're a child of the covenant, I've got to pull this together and I'm going to with one scripture. And then I'm going to believe God to work the miraculous. I could preach on the rest of the afternoon on this profound subject. But there is no scripture that I can highlight that is any more powerful than Jeremiah 33 verses 20 and 21. This is where the prophet Jeremiah is rehearsing the covenant that God made with David. God made a special covenant with David where he promised him that there would always be one of his seed on the throne, that the Davidic dynasty would continue on forever, that there would never be a break in it, that there would always be one of the seed of David occupying the throne and God would watch over it to protect it. And listen how sure that promise is. God said, thus says, says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day. So God even makes covenant with natural laws and patterns and functions in the universe. Wow. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there should not be day and night in their season. Then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. In other words, God was saying, you'll have to stop the sun from coming up tomorrow morning before you can stop the purpose of God in my servant David. And I know people come back at me real quick and say, well, there's no king reigning on a throne now who can call himself a son of David. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. Because the throne moved from earth to heaven when Jesus ascended up because, by the way, he was of the household of David. He was even called the son of David. The leper said, have mercy on us, son of David. Blind Bartimaeus said, have mercy on me, son of David. They knew the prophecy that the Messiah would come from that line. And once the Messiah got here, he took an earthly throne and moved it up to another sphere and made it a heavenly throne. And as long as time and eternity shall endure... 
the throne of David is intact because the throne of David and the throne of God have merged and become one. Hallelujah. And you'll have to stop the sun from coming up and stop the moon from shining at night before you can stop any of those who trace their heritage to that son of David who has changed our lives and transformed our past, present, and future. Come on, somebody magnify God. All the... I've got to say this, all the demons that exist would have to gather themselves on the horizon and prevent the sun from coming up tomorrow morning before they could stop you or you or you or you if you're abiding in a covenant relationship with God. That's the security of your position. That's why you should never disobey. That's why you should never have secret sin in your life. That's why you should never break covenant with God. You should fight every urging, every temptation, everything that comes against you to abide on your part in covenant with him. And that keeps the line of communication open and the line of covenantal grace open. And God will send his grace like a flood into your life in impossible situations. I'm challenging you right now. I don't have to lay hands on you for this to be activated. I don't have to lay hands on you for this to be realized in your life. I'm going to ask you to do two things. I'm going to ask you to do two things. And I hope it's 100% participation. When Josiah, King Josiah, one of the best kings ever to reign over Judah. When King Josiah heard, they discovered the words of the covenant, they discovered the old scrolls, and they read the sacred scripture. And he and all the elders of Israel, the Bible said, stood to the covenant. Second Kings chapter 23. Everybody say they stood to the covenant. And King Josiah stood by a pillar And he stood up and they recommitted themselves in covenant relationship to the God who had covenanted with them. That's an important facet of what I'm going to ask you to do. And then in in Psalm 51 verse 16, it talks about putting the covenant in your mouth. How important it is to put the covenant in your mouth. Don't say, I'm so sick. Oh, God, I don't think I'll ever get rid of this sickness. Say, I serve Yahweh Rapha, the God who said, I am the God who heals you. And it's part of my covenant relationship that with his stripes I was healed. And if I was healed, then I am healed. And somebody ought to shout amen to that. It's part of your covenant relationship with him. But you've got to put the covenant in your mouth. And those are the two things I'm asking you to do. This may be all different to you. Maybe you've never heard something quite on this level. If you've heard David preaching, I'm sure you have. But if you're visiting here today, you may not have ever heard anything quite on this level. But it's straight out of the word of God. And I guarantee you, your life will be radically and miraculously changed if you dare to recommit yourself in covenant relationship with God. Here we are on the cusp of 2024. 
and it's a tumultuous time. All the banking systems of the world are feverishly trying to move us toward a digital currency. And once that happens, the human race will become slaves to these global bankers. And not only that, the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization are feverishly working with new laws agreed to by the United Nations where they will have unilateral control. They will have global control over the response to any pandemic. And that will just be a door opener to a global political situation where unelected officials will control every single nation in the world. It will be a coup that takes place without a fire being shot with paper and agreements. But I believe in a God who has already anticipated these plans told us about it, and let us know there's going to be a people in the last days who have the seal of the living God. I don't care what the enemy's camp proposes to do. I believe there's a covenant people who are in covenant with a covenant-making, covenant-remembering, covenant-establishing God, and I'm going to stand to the covenant today, and I'm going to put the covenant in my mouth, and I'm going to reestablish what relationship between heaven and earth is in my life. Would you stand to your feet right now? And I'm going to expect you to be healed physically. I'm going to expect you to be delivered spiritually. I'm going to expect you to be set free supernaturally when you do this. And I'm asking everyone, if you would, please, to come up into this altar area and let's stand to the covenant. When you come up here and stand, now, many times you want to come to an altar and kneel. Many times you want to come to an altar and fall flat on your face. But today I want you to approach it differently. It's your way of saying, I'm going to stand for the truth. I'm going to stand for what's right. I'm going to stand for the name of Jesus. I'm going to stand for the truth of God's word. I'm going to stand for morality in a world that's becoming increasingly immoral. I'm going to stand by the moral standard. Come on, so those behind you can come up also, please. In Jesus' name, come forward to the front if you would, please, because we're about to have an encounter with the covenant-keeping God, and he's going to breathe life into you and I believe he's going to rebuke sickness from you he said he would rebuke the devourer from you if you pay tithe especially he said I will rebuke the devourer from you who seeks to devour you physically financially emotionally mentally spiritually the enemy is about to get a whop from heaven where God is going to cleanse the room of satanic attacks and satanic agendas. Come on, let's lift our voices right now. I want you to lift your voice and as boldly, as boldly, as boldly as you've ever said anything in your life, I want you to say these words if you would please. Say, I decree, I decree. that I am a child of the covenant. My father is a covenant-keeping God. He watches over me to heal me, to deliver me, to provide for me, to forgive me, to establish me, to fill me with his own righteousness, with his own strength, with his own wisdom. I take the covenant in my mouth right now. And I declare, I will survive and I will thrive in the midst 
of every attack from the enemy, I will survive and I will thrive in the midst of every attack from the enemy. I will survive and I will thrive in the midst of any attack from the enemy. And I lift my hands now and I praise the God who has covenanted with me, who has promised me he would never leave me and never forsake me. And I respond by saying, God, would you say that again? Say, God, to the best of my ability, by your grace, I respond with a covenant commitment. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you and I will not forsake your principles. I will stand for what's right in an unrighteous world and I rehearse and renew my covenant with you this day in Jesus' name. Now would you lift your voices and begin to praise him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that lies within you. Praise him with your spirit. Praise him with your emotions. Praise him with your mind. Praise him with your uplifted heart. Praise him with every fiber of your being. Praise him knowing that God Almighty is in your life. He's almighty, all-powerful, all-sufficient, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. And he's the God that can change the unchangeable and move the unmovable and conquer the unconquerable. He is the God who is involved in your life right now. He's opening a door that no man can shut and shutting a door that no man can open. He's sealing you into a a place with him, a secret place, a hidden place. He's sealing you into a protected place, a place of protection, a place of provision. He's breathing new life into you. A rushing mighty wind is coming from heaven. It's the quickening power of the resurrected Christ. He's resurrecting you physically. Come on, lift those hearts toward heaven and begin to praise him out loud with all your might. Don't hold anything back. Don't hold anything back. Talk to him right now. Talk to him right now. Talk to him right now and praise him for divine involvement in your life. Praise him for manifesting the miraculous. Praise him for your healing right now. You can get a healing without me laying hands on you. Just say, God, I believe you're taking sickness out of my body. You said you would not even allow it to come near my home. You said no plague can come nigh your dwelling. And I claim that and I believe that and I trust you for that. Go ahead and keep praising him. Go ahead. The Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord turn his face toward you and give you peace say amen
favor. May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your families and your children and their children and their children. May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your families and your children and their children and their children. May his favor be upon you
the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Sing that again. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Say amen. 